12 years ago, uh, we began to put together vision and plans, really laying the groundwork for what would become Oaks Parish. And starting a church is very similar to starting a business. You need a vision, you need a strategic plan, and you need funding. Working with our oversight, uh, we determined the price tag for those first five years of ministry here in Portland, and, and it totaled up to about $800,000. And I have never raised that level of support in my whole life. Before coming to Portland, I served as an assistant pastor of a church in Atlanta, and there was a couple in our congregation there that had generously supported us in that role. The husband in particular was a committed follower of Jesus, a successful entrepreneur in technology. He served on the board of a local nonprofit. His wife was a successful counselor. So at the beginning of this fundraising journey for Oaks, I asked the husband to lunch. I knew he was good at sales. He knew the world of nonprofit and fundraising. And I was just really getting together with him to pick his brain on our process. Thinking through our fundraising strategy, I had anticipated perhaps a, a follow-up meeting with he and his wife to ask them for a $50,000 gift. But towards the end of that lunch, I felt God whisper into my heart, ask him for a hundred grand. And so with all the courage I could muster, I looked at him in the eyes, I asked him to give a hundred thousand dollars, and then I closed my mouth. And he replied, Man, that would be really challenging, but it's possible. And a month later, the four of us had dinner together, and with great excitement, he and his wife informed us that they were committing $100,000 to Oaks Parish. If you've ever been to a newcomer's gathering, the story is familiar to you. It was the first domino that fell, and within two months after that dinner, God had raised up several hundred thousand dollars more. It quickly moved us towards this ultimate goal. It provided assurance in this journey of faith that indeed this was God's calling in our life. So fast forward five years after the start of Oaks Parish. I'm back in Atlanta. I'm at the home of this couple. We were celebrating all that God had done. And over dinner, this couple said to me, you know, we really had to trust God in a big way to give you that level of money. But it unlocked a whole life of generosity that we never thought was possible. This morning we begin a new four-week sermon series to kick off the new, right out of the gate. I want you to know that we're not doing this series because somehow we're behind on giving here at Oaks Parish, and nor are we kicking off a capital campaign here and, and while we're still finalizing gifts from the end of the calendar year, our numbers at the end of December reveal that we're in a pretty healthy place. We have a, a slide, hopefully on the screen, that shows that. As you can see in the numbers, we had a great December. We're almost on pace, on track for the year. So the ultimate point I want to make in this series is the point that Paul was making to the church in Corinth. In his letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul writes this, The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance, so that by all we may share abundantly in every good work. And that's an incredible picture of the life that we're invited to in Christ. Our church was founded upon the very mornings, uh, mornings of generosity. Generosity is in our DNA. Paul paints this life-giving picture to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Instead, God loves a cheerful giver. This morning, I want us to look at the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. And this text leads us to a pivotal question. And then the answer to that question presents to us a radically different relationship with money. So let's begin with the parable. Because there's some fundamental information that we need to understand about what is known as the parable of the talents. First of all, you might be asking the question, what is a parable? We throw that word around a lot in the church as if we all know what it means. The technical definition is that a parable is a short, simple story that uses everyday experiences to convey a deeper spiritual meaning. A short, simple story uses everyday experiences to convey a deeper spiritual meaning. This particular parable is all about money. But as you'll see, it's really not about money. But when you understand what it's really about, then you'll understand that it's very much about money. Pretty simple, right? So let's start at the beginning. In verse 14, Jesus says, for it. What is the it there? Well, back in, in some preceding verses, what Jesus is talking to these religious leaders about is the kingdom of heaven, or what we might call the kingdom of God, the life that we have with God. Another way to put that is discipleship. So for it, the kingdom of heaven, is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. And we know Two of the servants took the talents they were given, invested them, made a profit. One of the servants took the talent, didn't invest it. Instead, he buried it in the ground. And after a long time, the master comes back. He calls everyone to account. He gives each servant his due. Now, when we hear these terms, master and slave, especially here in the United States, it immediately calls to mind chattel slavery that was very much a part of our own country's history. But slavery in the Roman Empire in the first century was a much more layered and complex system. Yes, certainly there were people who owned uh, slaves or, or slaves that were owned by others, and certainly there were masters. But slavery is also described in the first century as an array of employment contracts that in some ways reflects the contracts that we have with companies and corporations today. This story could be better translated into modern parlance if it read, the owner of a private equity company gave sums of money to three fund managers who were expected to invest the money for the sake of a return. After a 10-year period of time, the investment term came to an end, the investments monetized, and returns realized. Most of the time, when we get to the end of this parable, commentators interpret this story and go immediately to issues of financial stewardship. But not so fast. Because fundamentally, this story 
It isn't about money. It's really about discipleship. This parable is retelling Israel's history. It's retelling the Old Testament. Despite human beings breaking the cosmos in our rebellion against God, God promises in Genesis chapter 3 to redeem the world. And in carrying out that promise, God makes investments in particular individuals. One of those first big investments that he made was, for example, to Father Abraham. He promised Abraham that renewal for the whole world would come through his family. And we find as the story goes on in the Old Testament that God continues to make investments. People like Joseph, Moses, and Aaron, Rahab, Deborah, Hannah, David, prophets like Elijah, Elisha, and Isaiah. These sorts of people are represented by the first two fund managers in the story. They laid hold of the gifts of God, used them, and created exponential impact for the kingdom of heaven. But of course, there were a number of characters that squandered God's gifts. The first generation in the Exodus, King Saul, Solomon, a number of Israel's kings. These people are represented by the third fund manager in the story, the one who took the master's gift and buried it. <clears throat> Quite literally, the people who collaborated with God and took discipleship seriously, they advanced the kingdom of heaven in beautiful ways. But the people who squandered God's gifts ultimately chose a life outside of God's covenant blessings. Jesus is telling this story to the religious leaders of his day because they are the third fund manager. They were leading the people of God in the wrong direction. In their own earnest attempt to realize the kingdom of heaven here on earth, groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees were actually missing the kingdom altogether. They squandered the covenants of grace given to Israel going all the way back to the garden. So as you can see, this story isn't really about money. It's about discipleship. Jesus is telling this story, though, to lead us to one ultimate question. So let me give you kind of three things that we learn about discipleship that leads us to that question in this story. And I have them summarized here on this single slide. First, our view of God is central to life is really important for how we relate to him and how we live our life. Why did the fund man, the third fund manager make a radically different investment decision than the first two? The motivation of each fund manager was shaped by their view of the master. The first two fund managers, they were having fun. They had been given an incredible gift. One scholar estimates that the amount of money dispersed by the manager would have been almost $2 million today, adjusted for inflation, of course. The fundamental way in which they relate to the master is one of joy, delight, and trust. But note the view of the third fund manager in verse 24 and 25. He says, Master, I knew you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. 
I mean, think about that. Think about that for your own life. You know, when you think about God's face, for example, what is his expression? As you relate to God on a day-to-day basis, is he a benevolent father? Or, as with the third man, is he a harsh man? And here's the deal. If you view God as a harsh man, the fuel of your relationship will be anxiety, fear, and shame. Human beings, that gets us a couple of miles down the road. But it won't take you the distance. You might imagine that Jesus is telling this story to this group of religious leaders who are mixed up in their view of God. They're working so hard to realize the kingdom of heaven. And yet what they don't realize is that standing right in front of them is God's greatest asset. His greatest investment. His only son. And because they cannot see God as a benevolent father, they will take his son to the cross and bury him in the ground. How do you see God this morning? Secondly, the goal of life with God is joy. That's another thing we discover about discipleship here. You know, this parable is one in a series of parables where Jesus is describing life in his kingdom. And how we as human beings might orient ourselves for that life. I mean, consider the fact that the master rolled up one day and he handed out $2 million like it was nothing. I mean, that's pretty crazy. And note how the first two fund managers responded. They were given five talents. They produced five talents more in the first case. And how does the master reply? Well done, good and trustworthy. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then notice what he says. Enter into the joy of your master. With the second dynamic. Very similar conversation. He was given two talents. He produces two more. Same reply. Well done. You're trustworthy. Enter the joy of the master. Then we find this really confusing ending. The master takes away the money from the third fund manager. He gives it to the first, but not to the second. No one's really sure why that's the case, to be honest. But the ultimate point is made in verse 29. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This is exactly what happened in the church after the resurrection. Those who received the gift of God the greatest investment, Christ Jesus, and built their life on him. They enjoyed spiritual abundance, even in spite of difficult circumstances. But those who rejected the gift of the gospel, they missed out on this life that is truly life. Ever been given, they all culminate right here in Christ Jesus, where we find this joyous life. In God. Third, our life with God is an investment. One of my favorite financial podcasts consistently encouraged listeners to make short term sacrifices and invest so that we might retire wealthy. There's a good bit of biblical wisdom in that. You know, I think about my own life and, and the life of 
of what has become the life of my parents. My dad and Amanda's mom died at 73. My stepdad, who's now 80, was recently diagnosed with a terminal type of cancer. And even if you amass an incredible amount of wealth, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of time at the end to enjoy it. So what Jesus is encouraging us to do is to think on a, on a longer, a much longer time horizon. One scholar writes that the parable sounds more like the language of heaven than the language of commerce. And so Jesus is telling us that eternity doesn't begin at one point way in the future, at the end of life as we know it. It begins right here, right now. What we're doing, the choices that we're making, how we spend our life, we find ourselves on an eternal trajectory. Okay, so Jesus gives us this parable. It really isn't about money. It's about discipleship. But the parable is leading us to ask this one ultimate question. Who owns it? Who owns it? Who owns the universe? Who owns every resource in the cosmos? Who owns your life? And therefore, who owns your bank account? To whom does your life belong? Does it belong to you? Or does it belong to God? That's what the parable is ultimately asking us. And when it comes to money, the question of ownership makes all the difference in the world. Whether you view yourself as the owner or God as the owner, that creates two different, radically different qualities of life. When you view God as the owner, three things will happen. And this is really the practical takeaway for this morning. First, if God is the owner, he will rescue you from money's deception for money's deception. You know, we live in the most wealthy country in the world and arguably in all of human history. The Bible contains 2,350 verses on money, possessions, and our attitude toward them. Jesus talks about money more than any other topic. That's fascinating. Now think about this in terms of biblical context. Civilizations in the, in, the, in the ancient Near East, which is the Old Testament context, first century Rome, which is the New Testament context, the wealth of these civilizations pales in comparison to the wealth that we have here in the United States. And if God had so much to say about money to people in those cultures, imagine how significant what God is saying about money is to us. Like any other parable, or like another parable, a fish says to another fish, how's the water today? To which the fish replies, what's water? Wealth is the water that we swim in here in America. Money is so woven into the fabric of our existence, we don't even realize the power that it exerts in our life. Notice what Longtime pastor and author Tim Keller says about this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He writes, as a pastor, I've had people come to me to confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost, 
I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money of God's modus, God tells his, the modus operandus includes blindness to your own heart. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex, yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. How can we recognize and become free from the power of money blind to us? Money's deception is that it makes us feel like all of our security, our hope, and our identity is tied up in our past, present, or future net worth. But that spell is broken when you realize that Jesus came, came to be your security, hope, and your identity. And when you see him as the Lord of your life and the owner of your possessions, then and only then can you clearly see the falsehood perpetuated by wealth. Second, if God is the owner, he will rescue you from money's power. You know, if, if you want to understand the power of money in your life, simply look at your own story. And I have to confess to you this morning, as we begin this series on cheerful giving, I have to confess that money has been the most significant spiritual issue in my life. As you might imagine, being in ministry isn't easy financially, especially in certain seasons. And so I have spent most of my adult life anxious, worried, and angry about my financial state. Part of that comes from my own story as I look at my own life. I grew up with two sets of parents because my parents got divorced when I was one. My dad was in sales. He wasn't great with money. Me and my stepmom went bankrupt when I was in middle school. And so I look at my dad, and I'm like, I don't want to be like that. I have great fear and anxiety in my heart. Meanwhile, my stepdad was a commercial banker and was excellent with money to the point that he set a standard that I always felt like I could never measure up to. And that, makes, that produces feelings of shame. So on one end, I have anxiety and fear. And on the other, uh, other end of the spectrum, I have shame. And at times when I feel like we're doing well financially, I can feel a sense of pride. I think, finally, I got it figured out. And at other times when we've struggled, I felt severe condemnation that somehow I failed at this thing called life. And that's the power of money in our life. It tortures us. It tortures me. But in Christ, we can find rescue. I mean, hear the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Third, if God is the owner, he will rescue you from money's limitations. This one's really, really important. Notice that risk is central to the parable of the talents. 
because the third fund manager didn't have an accurate view of God or God's view of him, this manager to live with a trusting faith. And as a result, he missed out on the joy of collaborating with the master and the life that would result. The first two fund managers, though, they were able to take risks with their money because they felt safe with the master. Like the prodigal son, this story could have easily described a scenario where managers were given money, they squandered it or failed at their investments, but were still lovingly received by their master. The first two managers, they understood that they were loved, that they were safe, that they were living inside of a larger kingdom. And therefore, they were able to move beyond their comfort zone and take risks. If you are the owner of your money, you will always self-protect and you will always play it safe. But when God is the owner, you will see that he who did not withhold his own son for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? I'm reminded of my friend's risk, giving money to help establish Oaks Parish. It unlocked a whole life of generosity that they never thought possible. If you see God as the owner, he will rescue you from money's deception, money's power, and money's... As we close here uh, in this first sermon of the series, uh, let me recommend or suggest a few resources for the journey. And the first is community. I encourage you over the next month to talk about your relationship with money in community. Now, I'm not talking about pulling out your W-2s and showing up at discipleship group. I'm talking about your heart's relationship with money. There might be some practical questions, sure. And have this conversation in your discipleship group or with a friend, roommate, with a spouse. I mean, we are so private about money here in the West because of money's deception. But gospel community has the power to break that spell. Second, uh, over the next month on the Oaks Parish podcast, um, we're going to be having a conversation about money. You know, you can only talk about money for so long at 30,000 feet. Eventually, you need to tackle questions at the ground level. And we've got some special guests lined up for the podcast. We'll be covering everything from tithing to budgeting to investing and more. Additionally, we would encourage you to send in questions that may be burning in your heart about your relationship with money. You can send a DM on Instagram or simply email Martha. Uh, Finally, I've been reading about five or six books in preparation for this series. And yesterday on Instagram, uh, we made a post that listed uh, that book list. All of these books are fantastic in their own way. Encourage you to check out that list. We'll include it also. Close with a prayer of financial trust that I found in one of these books that I'm going to use throughout this series. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for all we have. It is truly a gift we never deserved. Though we have some goals and dreams, we're totally content, even in times of suffering, because our identity is secure in your son, Jesus. In every situation, we lean on you and trust in you for provision, although our own planning and hard work plays a role. 
our heart and our life are full of generosity, animated by love for those in need, even when it costs me dearly. In your name we pray all these things. Amen.